The StoryCast is supported by you every time you click on our Amazon banner and shop. So head over to StoryCastPodcast.com and click or bookmark our Amazon ad. And we get a kickback on every order you make every time. Simple as that. Thanks. All right, before we get started this time, quick announcement. It's our 10th episode. Thanks for listening so far. I hope you enjoy this program as much as I do, thinking up the themes, researching stories, and putting it all together. What started as a simple idea has turned into a passion project I slip away to my office to to work on throughout the week. And I gotta tell you, besides my family, creating this show is the highlight of my day. It takes a lot of time and it's worth every second. This new media of podcasting and performance art through communicating ideas in this free media platform It's so fulfilling as someone who loves to take ideas and find new meaning. And we have so much growing to do as the show gets better and better. So thanks for listening. That's it. We already have three to four dozen daily subscribers. Without you, this show is nothing. And I'd love to hear your feedback on our website and Facebook page. So if you have a comment, show idea, or want to support the show with your Amazon purchases, or as a monthly subscriber, visit us at storycastpodcast.com. Right now, everywhere in our world, there are things that perfectly belong, yet we may never even notice them. Amazing things, disastrous things even. In many cases, they were here first, way before we humans. And these unwanted, these pests, these threats are here in the cosmos doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. The microbes under your fingernails, longing to damage your cells and make you sick. The giant chunks of ice soaring through space like a missile at hundreds of miles per second, destroying everything in their paths. So much about our world is unseen. And if we didn't know any better, unknown. But these spectacles, no matter how big or small, each share a common bond, an idea that helps us better understand and explore our universe on a massive scale or maybe even just with a nod and a smirk that makes us say, huh. Because like bacteria quite literally hides from us outside of a microscope, other things are just under our nose, but we're blind to their existence, implication, and meaning. This time on the StoryCast, stories of things hiding in plain sight. Ring Around the Rosie hides in plain sight. It's a nursery rhyme or folk song and playground singing game. It first appeared in print in 1881 in Kate Greenaway's Mother Goose, but it was reported that a version was already being sung to the current tune in the 1790s and similar rhymes were known across Europe. Urban legend says the song originally described the plague, specifically the Great Plague of London, and many folklorists reject this idea. Well, here's the story, and you decide. 
It's unknown what the earliest version of the rhyme was or when it began. Many incarnations of the game have a group of children form a ring and dance in a circle around a person and stoop or curtsy with the final line. The slowest child to do so would be faced with some penalty or become the rosy and take their place in the center of the ring. Numerous variations, corruptions, and even several vulgarized versions were noted to be in use long prior to the earliest printed publications. A similar incantation to this British lore also exists in Germany, the Netherlands, and Italy, with almost the exact same lyrics and rules to the game. Earlier versions also exchanged the ashes for sneezing and the rosies for roses. So the lyrics have massaged over the years, and so perhaps has the meaning. Since the 20th century, the rhyme has often been associated with the Great Plague, which happened in England in 1665, or earlier with the outbreaks of Black Death in England. Interpreters of the rhyme before the Second World War make no mention of this by 1951. However, it seems to have become well established as an explanation for the form of rhyme that had been standard in the United Kingdom. Famous folklorist Peter and Iona Opie, the leading authorities on nursery rhymes, remarked, The invariable sneezing and falling down in modern English versions have given would-be origin finders the opportunity to say that the rhyme dates back to the Great Plague. A rosy rash, they allege, was a symptom of the plague and posies of herbs were carried as protection to ward off the smell of the disease. Sneezing or coughing was a final fatal symptom and all fall down was exactly what happened. The line ashes, ashes in colonial versions of the rhyme is claimed to refer variously to the cremation of bodies, the burning of victims' houses, or the blackening of their skin, and the theory has been adapted to be applied to other versions of the rhyme. In its various forms, the interpretation has entered into popular culture and has been used elsewhere to make oblique references to the plague. So, while the rhyme may have started out as a kid's rhyme to pass the time and let out a little hyper-energy, over the years, a fun piece of childish entertainment somehow took on greater meaning of a time that very much changed our world. The Great Plague lasted from 1665 to 1666, and it was the last major epidemic of the bubonic plague to occur in England. It happened within the centuries-long time period of the second pandemic, an extended period of intermittent bubonic plague epidemics, which began in Europe in 1347, the first year of the Black Death, an outbreak that lasted until 1750. That's over 400 years of terrible disease. The Great Plague killed an estimated 100,000 people, almost a quarter of London's population. Plague is caused by a simple bacteria, which is usually transmitted through the bite of an infected rat flea. The plague had been a recurring problem in 17th century London. There were 30,000 deaths due to the plague in 1603, 35,000 in 1625, and 10,000 or more in other years. During the winter of 1664, a bright comet was seen to be in the sky and the people of London were fearful, wondering what evil event it pretended. London at that time consisted of a city about 448 acres surrounded by a city wall which had originally been built to keep out raiding bands. There were gates of Ludgate, Newgate, Aldersgate, Cripplegate, Moorgate, and Bishopgate, and to the south lay the River Thames and the London Bridge. 
In the poorer parts of the city, hygiene was impossible to maintain in the overcrowded tenements and garrets. There was no sanitation, and open drains flowed along the center of the winding streets. The cobbles were slippery with animal dung, rubbish, and slops thrown out of the houses, muddy and buzzing with flies in the summer, and awash with sewage in the winter. The city corporation employed rakers to remove the worst of the filth, and it was transported to mounds outside of the walls where it was accumulated and continued to decompose. The stench, it was overwhelming, and people walked around with handkerchiefs or nosegays pressed against their nostrils. Carts, carriages, and horses were crowded together in the gateways and the wall formed bottlenecks through which it was difficult to progress. The poor walked and might be splashed by the wheeled vehicles and drenched by slops being thrown out and water falling from the overhanging roofs. And that's not to mention the choking black smoke belching forth from factories which made soap, from breweries and iron smelters, and from about 15,000 houses burning coal. London was a mess, and things were about to get much worse. Outside the city walls, suburbs had begun springing up to provide homes for the craftsmen and tradespeople who flocked to the already overcrowded city. These were shanty towns with wooden shacks and no sanitation. The government had tried to control this development, but had failed, and over a quarter of a million people lived there. Other immigrants had taken over to find townhouses vacated by royalists who had fled the county during the Commonwealth, converting them into tenements with different families in every room. These properties became vandalized and became rat-infested slums. So, the slums begat rats, and with the rats, the fleas, and with that, the plague would infest England. There were outbreaks and quarantines. The plague in London largely affected the poor, as the rich were able to leave the city by either retiring to their country estates or residing with kin in other parts of the country. The numbers were rumored to be vastly underreported, with some accounts putting as many as 200,000 deceased. As the Black Death finally receded, England would face smallpox and the Great Fire of London as well. Londoners, though, would rise from tragedy with a greater sense of community from the adversity. They would rebuild, repopulate, and renew their charm, in part with a brutally honest nursery rhyme that would be repinned to remember the history and turn the wretched past into a game, laughing in the face of death and children smiling, skipping, and curtsying towards better days as they'd ring around the rosy with pockets full of posy. Ashes, ashes, it all fall down. But only for a minute, because they'd laugh and get back up again. Sometimes, there are monsters hiding in the most innocent, innocuous, and even life-giving places. And the cause? Maybe not so innocent at all. It's been a hotbed of political debate and media coverage. The water supply in Flint, Michigan is a crisis of unprecedented proportion for this supposedly first world country we live in. The effects of fracking for natural gas and the crooked leaders who turned a blind eye to the contamination are just the tip of the iceberg.
When Nakia Wakes moved to Flint in mid-2014, school was not an issue for her seven-year-old son, Jalen Tyson. During the intervening school year, Tyson was suspended once. In the 2015 school year, his suspension has ballooned to 56. Wakes, 40, doesn't know what else to blame but Flint's water source. I believe it's the lead exposure. We've been here two years, so we've had two years of exposure, she said. And I think I've seen his behavior change dramatically. In November, Wakes had Tyson's blood level tested. It registered at a concentration of five micrograms per deciliter of blood, a level deemed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to be, quote, much higher than most children's levels. Her daughter, Nashuana, 16, also registered at five micrograms. But even now, Wakes doesn't know with certainty the source of her children's problems. A lack of data, the extreme limits of lead blood testing and dueling assessments of lead exposure have all compounded to complicate what may be one of the greatest long-term threats as Flint, Michigan reels from its water contamination crisis. The potential impact on thousands of young children in the city. Shauna Phillips, a teacher at the University of Michigan Flint's Early Childhood Development Center says she's even noticed her own two-year-old son has been developmentally delayed. It's hard to say that was related to the water or whether that was just how he was born, she says. Flint's water became contaminated with lead in April 2014 after a state-appointed emergency manager switched the city's water source from Lake Huron to the local Flint River. State regulators failed to require the addition of corrosion control agents, allowing lead to leach off pipes and flow into households. A task force investigating the crisis concluded in a lengthy report that state officials, chiefly the office of Michigan's Governor Rick Snyder, are to blame for the water crisis, which it called unequivocally a case of environmental injustice. Decades of studies have shown elevated blood lead levels can stunt mental growth in young children and, in high concentrations, later lead to delinquent or sometimes violent behavior. In the classroom, even low blood lead levels in a child can translate into lower reading and math scores. Many experts say no level of lead is safe for children. But for the scope of just how Flint's children are affected may not be fully understood for some time, if ever. It's unclear if lead exposure has already had a noticeable impact on Flint's public school system. The district has not released reading readiness and math test scores for years after 2012-2013. Widespread blood lead tests have not been yet released, and even when they are, they only reflect exposure from the previous 30 days, and don't suggest what symptoms and impact lead exposure may have had. Compounding the situation in Flint, where over 40% of the predominantly black population lives in poverty, is that long-term neurological problems could also be attributed to a multitude of circumstances. Poverty, poor nutrition, low-quality schools. One will not be able to say if the issues identified were due to the lead level or not, says Dr. Helen Benz, a Northwestern University professor of pediatrics and preventative medicine. She points out that plenty of children are identified with developmental issues that do not have lead exposure. Lead can be a contributing factor, but it's not the only factor. Still, state officials have advised that children under six in the city, roughly 9,000 in total, should be treated as having been exposed as many parents come forward with stories about their own kids, and officials haven't signaled that the water is yet safe to drink. Melissa Mays and Leanne Walters say their children have had noticeable changes since the city's water supply was switched from the lake to the local river. Walters' son Gavin has developed speech impediments. Mays, a plaintiff in the state and federal class action lawsuits filed in response to the crisis, says her son's grades have slipped. 
Outside a hearing in Washington, D.C. last month, Flint native Tammy Lauren, 36, said her four children, all boys aged 10 to 14, tested positive for elevated blood lead levels. One of her children has a cognitive learning disorder, attention deficit disorder, and registered the highest lead level among his siblings, 23 micrograms per deciliter of blood. Citywide blood tests haven't yet been released, but when they are, they could dramatically underestimate the number of affected children in Flint. And that's because since lead is only detectable for up to 30 days, if children stopped drinking Flint's water months before a test, an elevated blood lead level might not be revealed, but previous exposure could mean the damage goes undetected. Wakes says as much about our children's test results. The family hasn't consumed tap water in months, but a recent test showed Tyson still had a lead level of 3.3 micrograms per deciliter. She says, they were already at 5.0. There's no telling what they were in 2014 when they should have been telling us about this situation. They can't tell us what's gonna happen long-term to these children. Similar stories have been shared by many of Flint's vocal residents who have vehemently criticized the Snyder administration for delaying a response to the crisis. Almost immediately after the water source changed, residents complained about tap water that was discolored, odorous, and they said caused skin rashes among other ailments. Following the switch, the percentage of Flint children with elevated blood lead levels doubled to about 5% in total. Studies on lead and educational outcomes have shown a blood lead level of five micrograms per deciliter. The levels of Wake's kids could mean a child is, quote, more likely to be non-proficient in math, science, and reading, according to a CDC report released in April of 2015. A separate study cited in that report found children with that blood level scored 4.5 points lower on reading readiness tests. For children with concentrations above 10 micrograms, the report stated, it could result in significantly lower academic performance test scores in fourth grade. The Michigan State Legislature has appropriated nearly $70 million in aid for Flint, and Snyder has proposed spending tens of millions of dollars on more education and initiatives in the city. It's possible that every child in Flint could be affected by high lead levels, and so our action plans and resources are providing intervention and treatment, the governor said in a statement. He goes on to say, we will continue plans to address the long-term needs of Flint's families, just as we have addressed their immediate needs through bottled water and filters. The silver lining is, because of all this attention, early childhood education programs and resource centers are now thriving in Flint. A teacher at one of these centers, Starletta Rhett Henry, says, if they're not getting their basic needs at home, how am I supposed to teach you your colors, your alphabet, how to even socially interact with others? When they go home, there may not be that basic necessity they need to survive. Children are not equipped to handle that. Director of the University of Flint, Michigan's Early Childhood Development Center, Della Becker-Cornell says, we know that this lead in our system, the amount of effects it's going to have is generational. It's early intervention. It's getting these children in high quality programs with very educated teachers that can do the early interventions. Her current focus is in raising funds so that her center can help even more kids. In her office, dozens of cases of water line the walls, a daily reminder of the new reality in Flint and the city's 100,000 plus residents. We're going to be living like this for a very, very long time, she said. It's going to become our way of life. And for Nakia Wakes, and her children, and the rest of the children of Flint, Michigan. It has become a way of life. And the damage has been done. And unlike a real life monster, this monster was invisible, hiding in the walls and the faucets and the showers 
with the bath toys, in the ice cubes, in the sippy cups, in the garden hoses, in the sprinklers, in the cafeteria drinking fountains, and just about every other place that a child or anyone else would ever think that a monster would hide. And finally, the story of a family secret that's been hiding in plain sight. It's so obvious, but it's not. And that's what makes it so great. This is a short story by Rich Mill Crompton, first published in 1922. It's read by Alan Davis Drake for a website called LibriVox, a public domain audio collective. Enjoy. And happy hunting for those unimaginable things in your own life that hide in plain sight. Mary Clay looked out of the window of the old farmhouse. The view was dreary enough, hill and field and woodland, bare, colorless, mist-covered, with no other house in sight. She had never been a woman to crave for company. She liked sewing. She was passionately fond of reading. She was not fond of talking. Probably she could have been very happy at Crom Farm, alone. Before her marriage she had looked forward to the long evenings with her sewing and reading. She knew that she could be busy enough in the day, for the farmhouse was old and rambling, and she was to have no help in the housework. But she looked forward to quiet, peaceful, lamplit evenings, and only lately, after ten years of married life, had she reluctantly given up the hope of them. For peace was far enough from the old farm kitchen in the evening. It was driven away by John Clay's loud voice, raised always in orders or complaints, or in the stumbling, incoherent reading aloud of his newspaper. Mary was a silent woman herself, and a lover of silence. But John liked to hear the sound of his voice. He liked to shout at her, and to call for her from one room to another, Above all, he liked to hear his voice reading the paper out loud to her in the evening. She dreaded that most of all. It had lately seemed to jar on her nerves till she felt she must scream aloud. His voice going on, raucous and sing-song, became unspeakably irritating. His Mary, summoning her from the household work to wherever he happened to be, his Get my slippers! or Bring my pipe, exasperated her almost to the point of rebellion. Get your own slippers, had trembled on her lips, but had never passed them, for she was a woman who could not bear anger. Noise of any kind appalled her. She had borne it for ten years, so surely she could go on with it. Yet today, as she gazed hopelessly at the wintry countryside, she became acutely conscious that she could not go on with it. Something must happen. Yet what was there that could happen? It was Christmas next week. She smiled ironically at the thought. Then she noticed the figure of her husband coming up the road. He came in at the gate and round to the side door. Mary! She went slowly in answer to the summons. He held a letter in his hand. Met the postman, he said. From your aunt. She opened the letter and read it in silence. Both of them knew quite well what it contained. 
She wants us to come over for Christmas again, said Mary. He began to grumble. She's as deaf as a post. She's most as deaf as her mother was. She ought to know better than to ask folks over when she can't hear a word anyone says. Mary said nothing. He always grumbled about the invitation at first, but really he wanted to go. He liked to talk with her uncle. He liked the change of going down to the village for a few days and hearing all its gossip. He could quite well leave the farm to the hands for that time. The crude deafness was proverbial. Mary's great-grandmother had gone stone deaf at the age of thirty-five. Her daughter had inherited the affliction, and her granddaughter. The aunt with whom Mary had spent her childhood had inherited it also, at exactly the same age. "'All right,' he said at last, grudgingly, as though in answer to her silence. "'We'd better go. Write and say we'll go.' It was Christmas Eve. They were in the kitchen of her uncle's farmhouse. The deaf old woman sat in her chair by the fire knitting. Upon her sunken face there was a curious sardonic smile that was her habitual expression. The two men stood in the doorway. Mary sat at the table looking aimlessly out of the window. Outside the snow fell in blinding showers. Inside the fire gleamed on to the copper pots and pans, the crockery on the old oak dresser, the hams hanging from the ceiling. Suddenly James turned. Jane, he said. The deaf woman never stirred. Jane! Still there was no response upon the enigmatic old face by the fireside. Jane! She turned slightly towards the voice. Get them photos from upstairs to show John, he bawled. What about the boats? she said. Photos, roared her husband. Coats? she quavered. Mary looked from one to the other. The man made a gesture of irritation and went from the room. He came back with a pile of picture postcards in his hand. It's quicker to do a thing oneself, he grumbled. They're what my brother sent from Switzerland, where he's working now. It's a fine land, to judge from the views of it. John took them from his hand. She gets worse, he said, nodding towards the old woman. She was sitting, gazing at the fire, her lips curved into the curious smile. Her husband shrugged his shoulders. Aye, it takes longer to tell her to do something than to do it myself. And deaf folks get a bit stupid, too. Can't see what you mean. They're best let alone. The other man nodded and lit his pipe, and then James opened the door. Ah, the snow stopped, he said. Shall we go to the end of the village and back? The other nodded and took his cap from behind the door. A gust of cold air filled the room as they went out. Mary took a paperback book from the table and came over to the fireplace. Mary! She started. It was not the sharp, querulous voice of the deaf old woman. It was more like the voice of the young aunt whom Mary remembered in childhood. The old woman was leaning forward, looking at her intently. Mary! A happy Christmas to ye! And as if in spite of herself, 
Mary answered in her ordinary low tones. The same to you, Auntie. Thank ye, thank ye. Mary gasped. Aunt, can you hear me speaking like this? The old woman laughed silently, rocking to and fro in her chair, as if with pent-up merriment of years. Yes, I can hear ye, child. I've always heard ye. Mary clasped her hand eagerly. Then you're cured, aunt. I, I'm cured as far as there was ever anything to be cured. You? I was never deaf, child, nor never will be, please God. I've took you all in fine. Mary stood up in bewilderment. You? Never deaf? The old woman chuckled again. No, nor my mother, nor her mother neither. Mary shrank back from her. I don't know what you mean, she said unsteadily. Have you been pretending? I'll make you a Christmas present of it, dearie, said the old woman. My mother made me a Christmas present of it when I was your age and her mother made her one. I haven't a lass of my own to give it to, so I give it to you. It can come on quite sudden-like, if you want it, and then you can hear what you choose, and not hear what you choose. Do you see? She leaned nearer and whispered, You're shut out of it all, of having to fetch and carry for him answer their daft questions, and run their errands like a dog. I've watched you, my lass. You don't get much peace, do you? Mary was trembling. Oh, I don't know what to think, she said. I, I couldn't do it. Do as you like, said the old woman. Take it as a present, always. The crude deafness for a Christmas present. She chuckled. Use it? or not, as you like. You'll find it main amusing, always. And into the old face there came again that curious smile, as if she had carried in her heart some jest fit for the gods on Olympus. The door opened suddenly with another gust of cold wind, and the two men came in again, covered with fine snow. Ah, I'll not do it, whispered Mary, trembling. We didn't get far. It's coming on again, remarked John, hanging up his cap. The old woman rose and began to lay the supper, silently and deftly, moving from cupboard to table without looking up. Mary sat by the fire, motionless and speechless, her eyes fixed on the glowing coals. Any signs of deafness in her? whispered James, looking towards Mary. It come on my wife just when she was that age. Aye, so I've heard. And he said loudly, Mary! A faint pink color came into her cheeks, but she did not show by look or movement that she had heard. James looked significantly at her husband. The old woman stood still for a minute with a cup in each hand and smiled her slow, subtle smile. The StoryCast will be back in two weeks with more eclectic stories wrapped 
in an intriguing theme.